0: Welcome to Episode 285 with my guest, Luke Burbank. Today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Whether you need a landing page, a beautiful gallery, a professional blog, or an online store, it's all included with your Squarespace website. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and use the offer code MENTAL to get 10% off your first purchase. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website uh, for this show is mentalpod.com. Uh, Mentalpod is also the Twitter handle that you can follow me at. Uh, but go to the mentalpod.com uh, website, and you can browse the form. You, you can read blogs or guest blogs, and most importantly, you can fill out surveys anonymously, um, and maybe we'll read your survey on the uh, the program. Can we call it a program? I want to remind you, too, those of you in the Bay Area, I am coming to Oakland, July 20th and 21st, Doing two separate live podcast recording, recordings. One is with uh, Glenn uh, Washington, who is one of the hosts of NPR's uh, Snap Judgment, and then the other guest is uh, Jamie DeWolf, who is the grandson, grandson or great grandson of uh, Scientology founder L. Ron Hubbard. So it should be should be really interesting. Um, I'm leaving tomorrow to go out of town. So the surveys aren't going to be, look at me apologizing. What is it? A minute and 48 seconds in and uh, you got an apology out of me already. So there's not going to be as many surveys as there there normally are. Um, And it has nothing uh, to do with the fact that for the last uh, two months, uh, I've been playing the game uh, Civilization V until the sun comes up. And by the way, that was before I started uh, taking the Adderall. So don't send me emails and tell me I'm experiencing mania because of that. Um, what I am experiencing is civilization-induced mania. Um, this is a struggle in a sentence survey. This is filled out by uh, Lisa, and she writes about her depression, uh, and she's a teenager. Uh, clinical depression feels like being the human version of a book that's just sitting on a bookshelf shelf waiting to be read. That's a great one. Thank you for that. Um, What the hell just happened, uh, says about his alcoholism and drug addiction. I don't need to drink every day, but if I can't drink on my drinking day, you better hope you're not around. About his bulimia, totally unconscious, going for days on nothing but coffee and then rewarding myself with a whole pizza and a five-pound bag of peanut M&M's. I got to say, I think that's a healthy choice because what you're doing is you're you're keeping your stomach guessing and uh, that keeps it humble. About his love addiction, he writes, I'm going to keep shooting you in the leg so that you can't get away and then I'm going to complain that you're walking too slow. That is fantastic. Thank you for that. Uh, Rain writes about her depression. In a ball on the floor crying because I can't get the damn shelf back in the fridge. Oh, I've been there. Anxiety. Spending a half hour in the bathroom stall because I can't have anyone hear me shit. I think a lot of us relate to that one. Um, And about having a health issue. Being born with holes in your heart means everyone is too busy overreacting about your physical health to notice the new holes they're creating. Thank you for that. That's... uh, God, that's got to be a lot. And then this one's by Phoenix, who writes um, um, about her anorexia and her her OCD. She writes a snapshot from her life, sitting on my bathroom floor, toothbrush in my hand, practicing how to gag silently so that my parents won't hear me expelling dinner. A voice telling me in the back of my mind that maybe it would be better if they did hear I fear, that I'm I fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job. Mental illness is a podcaster. He is. Uh, he has a, a great podcast. Uh, it's also an NPR radio show called Live Wire, which um, uh, I just did recently and had a great time doing. He is also a uh, correspondent, you would call that, for CBS Morning News, a co-host. Uh, what do you... Ja- well,
1: jackass? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I was actually just working on a piece yeah. for CBS TV um, about an hour ago, mm-hmm. and at one point the producer said well you're just a freelancer so you don't know some of those things and this was as i was doing this interview with tig Notaro. i'm trying to really show off and be like seem like i know what i'm doing and that i'm legit and then the producer just casually referenced that i'm a freelancer so that really added a, a certain gravitas that i was really hoping for i
0: like it i like it um, well, they, it's weird because they list you in the credits of CBS Morning News as fuckface. Mm-hmm. Which I don't even know how they were able
1: to do that based on FCC stuff. Yeah, I don't either. It was a lot of work for the legal department to do something that was insulting to me. Yeah. I just thought they had other fish to you're fry. You're worth it. You're worth it.
0: That's what I took away from it. And that's backhanded it. in case yeah. you're wondering.
1: I'm able to take that backhand and turn it into a front hand <laughs> of like, hey, CBS blew $100,000 Figuring out a loophole so they could insult me when they run the credits. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna enjoy
0: that. Uh, Luke and I have only probably spent, uh, we went, went out to dinner before we taped the, uh, the show. And that's, those are the, really the only two times that we have spent any time together. But maybe I should only speak for myself. You feel like a real kindred spirit. Um, I don't know. It's just like we just, uh, we just hit it off. We share the same sense of humor. We both have low self-esteem. Mm-hmm. We're both white, middle-aged white guys. So we, we've been in the struggle our whole life. It's it's tough. A lot of people don't yeah. understand yeah. how hard it is to be the prison guard. Yeah. When is our time? It's just what I'm yes. asking. You know, it's like
1: it's hard being on top from birth as a straight white male. It is. Um I, the reason I think that you and I might feel like kindred spirits is because I have been such a fan of this show, which I only found out about a year ago. So what happened was, um, somebody retweeted a funny thing Maggie Mole retweeted. She's very or funny. I should say yeah. Maggie Mole wrote a thing on Twitter. Someone retweeted. It. I thought, this is really funny. Who is this Maggie Mole person? And so I went, I was looking at her Twitter feed, and then she said something like, oh, I was on this thing, the Mental Illness Happy Hour podcast. And I clicked on that, and I in- immediately thought, I'm not going to like this. <laughs> and <laughs> I can't blame you. Only because most podcasts are terrible. They are. And so I assumed this was just another terrible podcast. And I clicked on it, and I was I listened with intense interest throughout. And then the next day... I went and found a different, I think I maybe found the, the show with Roseanne's daughter. hmm. Jenny Pentland. Um, who is so much more than just being Roseanne's daughter, but yes. that was, uh, that was something that was particularly fascinating to me about that conversation. And then I just started going through and listening to kind of cherry picking episodes until I ran out of episodes of cherry pick and I just, and I just started listening to every episode. And, uh, and so I, I feel like I know you, even though you and mm-hmm. I have only met really briefly. Um, and yeah, just the, the the way the conversations tend to unfold on this show and your level of honesty and the level of honesty from the guests and also the people who fill out the surveys, it just... How amazing are the surveys? I mean... I mean, if only for the names people give themselves. Unbelievable. Forget... Every time I think, it's almost like horse racing. It's
0: like, how have they not run out of names that are awesome?
1: It's like so much time inside your house under a blanket gives you an amazing <laughs> amount of time and focus for coming up with the most bitchin' handle you could ever use for the Mental <laughs> Illness Happy Hour webpage. I mean, it is just, it's an embarrassment of riches yes. with that level of creativity. Well, self-hatred is the gift
0: that keeps on giving. Yes. Yeah. So Because uh, anyway. none of the names are ever like a, a braggy, Oh uh, God, I'm no. full of myself name. Yeah. It's It's always some twist on what a piece of shit I am. I am totally I'm
1: impressed with, I, I feel huge empathy for, and I feel a weird closeness that I don't even deserve <laughs> with the listeners of this show. I mean, I guess because I am a listener. But I mean yeah. when you when you read when you read things from, from listeners, I just I just it, it it's something that uh really resonates with me, I guess. Yeah.
0: They they really are the third the third guest uh on the on the podcast. Um when I invited you to come on the the podcast you said oh god i i don't know if i'm fucked up enough if i have enough to to talk about um and then what did you and then what did you say because one of the things i i i then said to you was you don't have to have any traumatic events in your life it's just do you have battles in your head do you struggle with whatever. Yeah. And I think it was in an say? email. Yeah.
1: I, th- I, I can't remember exactly what I said, but it was probably something along the lines of, um, you know, I have a massive hole in my <laughs> self that I just can't fill. And I am, you know, constantly uncomfortable in my own skin, you know, pretty typical stuff and also no reason for it. Yes. <laughs> this we- is, can I just like, as we're getting started here, can I just lay out what my kind of my biggest fear about being on the show is? Mm hmm is that there will be a lot of people listening who are dealing with really real and specific kind of mental illness stuff. And then this guy's going to come on who just kind of like sometimes, you know, feels low self-esteem. And it's, it's there's going to be a lot of people listening who just kind of think like, why am I wasting my time? Mm-hmm. I'm dealing with, you know, a whole variety of the things that are laid out often on the show. Yes. And I'm just kind of like, yeah, sometimes I don't feel great about myself. Yes. So I just feel like... I'm worried that i I
0: will be not bringing it enough <laughs> for well first the of all, that's a great sign that you're a good guest um, but secondly, there are tons of listeners who have the exact same issues that you have. They don't have anything traumatic to to point to, and I get emails from them and they say. You know, am I just being a baby? Am I making it up? Why? And and I always say, no, no, it's it doesn't matter. It it can oftentimes just be the absence of of something or who knows, maybe genetically somebody uh, just has an empty feeling that they that they can't or discomfort in their skin that they can't put their finger on. And I think that story is every bit as important as the one. Uh, of somebody that lived through a lot of trauma because the thing they both share is that you struggle to feel uh, relaxed in your skin, which is a fucking curse. It's a curse. And I think especially when you look at your life on paper, you would say, what in the world does this guy have to complain about? He's on TV, he makes money, he's on NPR, he lives in Seattle. I'm sure you have a nice house and et cetera, et cetera. Um, when I was in that place in my life where I had all the nice stuff on paper and the TV gig, I was at my most miserable and it scared the fuck out of me and I couldn't I had no idea. I had no idea why I felt why I felt that way and I'm not comparing my story to your story. I just bring that up to say because I think I'm more well known at this point than you are.
1: <laughs> and I think to compare the two would be I mean, it's just inaccurate.
0: (laughs) I I hope the listener and you understand what I'm trying to say, what I am with incredible verbosity. Is that a word Mm -hmm. trying to uh, trying to get across, which is your your story and people like your stories are incredibly important and incredibly valid because it's the ones that aren't dramatic where there's that additional hurdle of why yeah. should I give myself any kind of compassion? Why should I bother to open up to somebody? You know what? A, a struggle that I've had in,
1: we'll call this struggle in too many sentences. <laughs> when you're talking about that, that idea of, of kind of, you know, getting to the top of whatever little mountain or hill one has been aspiring to get to the top of. Um, and then it not feeling the way you thought I was going to feel mm-hmm. when you get there. I'm not, you know, I'm not on the top of any kind of big mountain. But, you know, I'm 40 years old. And when I was a kid, my dream was to do – to be an actor or to be on TV or to be mm-hmm. doing stuff in the media. And it has somehow come together that that is – those are the things I do for my job. But it never feels the way that you think it's going to never. feel. And I, I tend to live my life – I do think that the janitorial staff is here. You tell me when... I think they smelled you. And they thought somebody shit the hallway. (laughs) You still don't know what I did in that bathroom. (laughs) You haven't been in there.
0: Let's uh, let's close the door.
1: Okay. Um, When you're talking about that feeling that you had when your career was by the sort of outward measurements, probably really humming along. Mm -hmm. I have, I have this issue where I tend to think about my life in terms of like climbing up this cliff face, where if I just climb hard enough, I will get to a ledge that's wide enough for me to lay down on and just finally
0: relax. And possibly, and and then you will also be able to Enjoy it more because you'll be relaxing. Yeah, exactly.
1: Like, uh, if I could even, if I even told you what my current daily schedule is of all these things I'm doing, it's so much stuff. And I'm not, this is not a humble brag. It's not, you know, it's not like I'm saying I I am going to go host the David Letterman show, which would be weird because he retired. (laughs) Um, but it's just, I have all this stuff going on and my thought is, it's like, I'm climbing, I'm climbing. I'm going to do all this stuff. I'm going to keep climbing and I'm going to get to a ledge and it's going to be, then I can relax and then I can enjoy And then I kind of get to that ledge and then it's too small. Mm -hmm. And so then I'm like, Oh, my bad. The ledge is actually 400 feet north of here. Yes. Let me climb. Let me climb. Let me climb. Let me climb. Yes. And it's that is that has been a thing that i've struggled with for my adult life is i'm always kind of climbing and i'm never on the ledge and i'm never relaxing and so um that's not working for me great
0: (laughs) and my thought is is because you're always on the ledge you're always there with you the the things that you're uncomfortable with probably about yourself um are are always there and I so much—I so relate to to that feeling. And after reading a lot of Eckhart Tolle, um, I— I bought one uh, of his books from you recommending it on the show. A New Earth. Yeah. yeah. It's all we have is the present moment. That's it. That's That's the only place where we can make peace. I have tried to make peace with the future— And uh, I just realized this yesterday that I am in an abusive relationship with the future because (laughs) I constantly go back and it's just, it's, I never picture anything good in the future. It's always, uh, you know, see, uh, I have the opposite. I picture that the future is going to be
1: great. Yeah. So right now is going to maybe suck a little bit. I got to keep climbing. I got to keep like filling my life with things. Yeah. so that I can get to the future, which I know is going to be awesome.
0: Well, maybe because I've had the the letdown of getting the things that I thought were going to make me happy, to know that that's not going to fill me. So it's got to be it's got to be something else. But let's talk about your your life, your childhood. You uh, you grew up in a big family, and you were the oldest. Yeah, I'm one of seven kids,
1: and when I was a little kid, um, my mom and I and my dad and one of my sisters uh lived on well i lived on this religious commune with my mom when i was really a little baby in northern california a place called the lighthouse ranch which was in um Arcata, california which is outside of the metropolis of eureka california <laughs> that's beautiful country up there though it is it is although i feel like it's kind of like they shouldn't call it california it's really oregon it really is because when you hear california Most people think like, ah, the Beach Boys and Hanging Ten. And you get up to that part of Northern California, it's like, oh, sequoia trees and rain. yeah, And Christian hippies, which is my parents kind of crew and scene. So when I was a really little kid, I lived on this thing, the Lighthouse Ranch, and my parents moved to this little tiny cul-de-sac of like bungalow houses that used to be for migrant farm workers on a, a road called Elk River Road and that's where one of my sisters was born and then we eventually moved to Seattle when I was probably 5 or 6 so i mostly grew up in Seattle okay and and what was home life like um it just more love than 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 you could imagine and less money than you could imagine
0: yeah <laughs> yeah like like how so give me give me a, some some snapshots that you think are Emblematic well um let's see. I'm
1: trying to think of some you know my my mom and my dad met, and by the way, when I say my dad, he's technically my stepdad, but he and my mom got married when I was like two, and my biological father was off in Philadelphia. I never met him, and then I found out about ten years ago that he had died um so but I, I feel pretty. But you, op- but you have nothing in your life that's traumatic. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a good question. I, maybe we can get into that. It's like, <laughs> what I do feel like has been really fortunate for me is that I've always had a father figure who was tremendously loving. Yeah. And there was no, um, you know, kind of, they didn't feel like there was any distance there. Right. And it was from the moment, from when I became pretty conscious of the world. So that, I think, was a kind of a, a that was a lucky break for me. But, you know my my dad grew up in in LA and Montana and he kind of hit the road hitchhiking before college and ended up at this commune my mom was this like total free spirit who grew up in Philly and followed her her wingnut sister um out to this commune and so they were just full of like hope and Jesus and like uh excitement for the world but not like college degrees or plans specific concrete plans for like making a living and so They were just the living off
0: the land when uh, Well, they what were in happened the at the
1: commune was the commune was actually was it was called the Lighthouse Ranch but it was part of this larger church called Gospel Outreach Christian Fellowship.
0: And they didn't have a longer name.
1: <laughs> they added LLC later, <laughs> but I think that was just to try to get out of some tax issues. Um, so what would happen was uh, the, the brothers, they were called the men, would go off and they would plant trees for the US Forest Service on these crews. And they would also thin trees, they would do all this work out there, the sisters would sort of stay and keep the home fires burning, they would grow crops and do all this stuff. And so that was how this whole thing was kind of supported financially. Then the the The, um, the goal was to go forth and spread the word. So they, uh, this church started making small churches all over the country, including one in Seattle. So we moved to Seattle as a family because my parents were going to be part of this church that was up there. And I guess if I could, if I could think of some examples of my childhood, you know, my, my mom is a person who has a lot of, For her, there's a lot of emotion around um, getting a good deal and also not overspending on things. And so, like, our whole family life revolved around these various scams that she would set up. Not, like... Illegal. Not illegal scams. I mean, they're on the the Mm -hmm. edge. But, like, she was always doing some kind of a thing to try to figure out how to game the system. Like, there was these coloring contests that a local grocery store would have. And the deal was, like, you would get one of the paper bags around Thanksgiving, and it would have an outline of a turkey on it, and you would color that in and enter it at the Safeway. First prize, $10 cash. Well, my mom realized that there was no official rule against entering at multiple Safeways. So she got my four sisters to basically start, like, a coloring contest sweatshop <laughs> in our dining room where they were all – coloring like 40 bags each and she figured out that if they added little like a little tableau in the back like um this was not part of the printout this was like custom like a little cottage with a curly cue of smoke and then sometimes like a stump with an axe (laughs) in it which is a little macabre (laughs) if you think about it these were the things that would cause an unsuspecting safeway manager to be like all right this kid put the extra effort in so my sisters would win like hundreds of dollars in these coloring contests every year and like my job was to man the phones so i'd get a call and then i was not allowed to say like which safeway is this because that would be like what do you mean which this is we're the safeway down the street from your house right like how many safeways are you entering it so i had to kind of like sort of figure out a way to find out which safeway it was
0: oh my god our
1: whole life was kind of full of these little moments and what i think it Where I think a lot of my stuff comes from is that I felt a lot of the time in my childhood like I didn't quite have the thing that the other kids had. And I didn't want the coolest thing. We're talking about, like, shoes and clothes. And you just want to fit in, right, when you're a kid. I mean, that's all you want is to just not stick out, not be the target of of other kids' attention. And that level of just the fitting in, like, I never had – a cool lunchbox. You know, I would bring, like, my lunch would come in the bag that the bread had been in. <laughs> the sandwich would be like a heel, <laughs> you know, like the, like, butt end of the bread or whatever. Yeah. There was just so many little moments where I always felt really embarrassed. Here's here's an a example of the way that the Burbank kids became quite ingenious. So one of my sisters, Liz, um, really wanted kids we didn't that was not in the family budget. Side note, I think keds were like 4 dollars retail. Yeah. These are almost disposable shoes. There's <laughs> like they're the cheapest shoes you can buy that are, you know, still technically not flip-flops. And we she didn't have the money for keds, so my sister found these fake keds that were even cheaper. She bought them. Then at like Goodwill, she found a pair of keds that didn't fit her. She took an exacto knife, she cut the blue keds rubber tag off the back, glued them to her fake Keds. Oh my God. This was the kind of like, this was the kind of stuff that was going on for the kids in this family. I grew up all the time. We were always figuring out ways to sort of just, and this is a loaded term to use. And I hope people understand. I don't, I don't think I have experienced the African-American experience, but to just sort of pass mm-hmm. and, and pass in this case just means to like, to just not look like the poor kids all the time. Um, And so that, I think that had a really big impact on me. That constant feeling of, you know, there was also things where like, I I think my parents didn't always have the greatest sense of what what information to protect us from. So when there was like financial stuff with my dad's business, which for the record, if he's listening and I pray to God, he's not... It wasn't his fault. It was actually, he took this business over from some other people in the church. They had not done a great job with the paperwork. He kind of inherited this problem. Mm -hmm. But when that happened, we as, you know, pretty young kids were like living under the fear that the IRS was going to come and just like lock this house we rented up and not let us in. Like there were a lot of things in my life as a kid that felt like really scary to me. Because there was also a lot of rapture stuff, a lot of hell stuff, because my parents are, are still very evangelical. Mm. So I think I I think I had a lot on my mind, and, and I think I, I created some, some tools and some pathways from that. And I'm sort of still carrying those around and using those tools here at age 40. Uh, talk about those tools.
0: Well... Or would you consider
1: yourself to be a workaholic? I think so, but the funny part is I think of myself as at my core, a really lazy person. I think most workaholics probably do, (laughs) but I just keep thinking when I can get to the next ledge, then lazy Luke is really coming out. This is all just to get to the point where I don't have to do shit for the rest of my life. Um, but if I look at my actual life, I've never not been on my grind, you know? Um, so I guess I am, I guess I am a, a sort of a, a person who clearly I, I, I calm some sort of anxiety through constantly working, constantly doing stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, other tools, I think something that I really struggle with, which is a thing that I see in my mom too, is hypervigilance about people insulting me yeah, or just saying something, people just somehow not liking me or being slightly negative towards me or judging me. I'm always scanning the horizon for that. And it makes my wife crazy because my wife who is a pretty stable person actually, she says I wish I could give you some kind of a transplant that would just let you know that I love you. Wow. Yeah. Because wow. I spend a lot of time trying to figure out what did she really mean?
0: By <laughs> somebody said to me when I was uh newly sober, somebody in my support group said, "I wish you you could see yourself through our eyes and I got really choked up. I got really choked up. Wow.
1: That makes me feel emotional even hearing you say that. Seriously. Because that's, I think, for people like me, whatever that means exactly, I think that's the big, there's probably a lot of big struggles, but that's one of the big struggles is I think I have a really hard time understanding how I'm actually coming off and my huge fear is that I'm looking non-self-aware or like I think I'm somebody or some kind of a thing where I'm the last person in the room to get the memo. <laughs> that is my biggest fear as well. You know, that, I do. I, I, sometimes I'll brush my teeth in the middle of the night so that I'm not breathing bad breath on my your wife. wife who's on the other side of a huge king vet because <laughs> The idea that she would have the thought one time cross her mind, this guy's breath is not good, is crushing to me. Oh, my God. But no, I'm doing fine. <laughs> it's, it's all working, Paul. It's going just fine.
0: You know what? I think this might be a good time for us to go through um, fears.
1: All right, all Did right. you bring fears or are I we didn't. just going to riff them? I th- I can probably grab some from my mental inventory.
0: Let's um, still, let's let's trade some fears. Is this
1: a fear this is a fear off yeah. or oh, you're going to read some? I yeah, think Yeah, I'm I'm good actually. I'll just try to come up with some. Okay. Well, Which okay. is never hard. <laughs> <laughs> uh well that's one definitely that uh my wife will find me unattractive. I can expand that to like anyone would find me unattractive. Mm-hmm. On a physical, intellectual, you name it, level. Mm-hmm. It's like one person. So I guess if I could, if I want to state this as a fear, a fear would be that people don't
0: like me, but they're not telling me, but they're thinking it. Absolutely, uh, I so relate to the the feeling of uh, I'm the last one to understand this thing about me that is so off putting, and, and and I'll only find out on my deathbed that I've really blown right. it with people. <laughs> <laughs> that if I would just been aware of that one thing, life would have been so much better. I have a fear that this little thing that I do right
1: now, which is mostly radio shows and other things that are based on kind of like pretty confessional stuff. Like mm-hmm. I've kind of found, I've worked my way into this little world of media where I'm able to talk about my real feelings, my real experiences, and it seems to resonate with people, but things change all the time, and I have a huge fear that in five years people won't be into that, and I will have a nothing to offer and I have no useful skills outside of doing this, sadly Paul, this is right now what you're hearing this is me operating on all cylinders this is
0: <laughs> this is what I got no dude, I saw you uh host that episode of uh, Live Wire and I remember turning to the person that was sitting next to me and just saying he's unbelievable he's unbelievable well I appreciate you saying that and I do let me finish he's an unbelievable asshole okay and they we high fived each other tough but fair and got the fuck out of there tough but fair Yeah, I just feel like
1: I don't create anything real in this world and so as long as you know as long as there's a some kind of market for non-real <laughs> people, I'm all right. But when the asteroid hits, I got nothing. Well, I none of us will will need anything when the asteroid hits. Well, maybe that's a bad natural disaster. Um <laughs> example, when the uh when President Trump takes over and things get like start turning into that Cormac McCarthy novel The Road. Nobody needs a podcast about the road. They just need to survive. And I have, I think, limited survival They skills. just need to shut up and eat their roasted baby. That's all? Yeah. So um, so that's a fear. A fear is that basically everybody will figure out my bullshit, and it will lead me to financial disaster, yeah. which, uh, because of how I grew up, holds a particularly prominent— I would imagine. Prominent, um, also, can I just say this? I also have a fear that I'm overstating how poor we were, because— we lived in a house. My parents did not own it, but we lived in a house. We had a working car. Um, we had food. We had clothes. So many people had it much worse off. So I also mm-hmm. don't want to sound like I'm trying to uh, overstate. A, f- a friend of mine who's a comedian who actually, he lives in L.A., and I would highly recommend him for this show. His name's Andy Haynes. Mm-hmm. When I was telling about my childhood one time, he said, it must have been amazing when you found that golden ticket and got to go to that chocolate factory. <laughs> Because <laughs> it sounds like I may. So I have a fear that I'm also way too hung up on this one thing from my childhood, which is way less bad than a lot of people had it. But
0: I think the important thing is, is how you feel about it. The feelings that were left, because it's not a this isn't about prosecuting our circumstances. Yeah. You know, this is about and and, and I say this. With the understanding that it took me 40 years To be able to do that to myself, to say this isn't a pissing contest with other people's trauma or struggles. It's, you know, every every person have people have varying degrees of of sensitivity about things. Something that may roll off somebody's back crushes me, you know, sends me to bed just analyzing my entire life and going, oh, my God, I'm you know, I'm a joke of whatever it's 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 the i think it's those feelings how do we handle how do we handle that that discomfort what what's your, what are your go-to's when you get super uncomfortable or super
1: do you get depressed i have not uh struggled with depression my i think my i think my thing is let's see what do i do when i'm i think honestly I think I'm always at some level of discomfort. So I don't actually know. Are you an anxious person? Yes. Much like how I perceive myself to be an incredibly lazy, but probably workaholic, I think of myself as being an extremely chill person who's probably incredibly anxious all the time. You know? Like, I I started going to therapy maybe six, seven years ago. Before that... If you would have asked me, like, self-report, I would have been like, oh, my God, I am so relaxed. And what I've come to, I think, realize is that I am extremely anxious. So I don't even... I mean, I feel like I always have... Like, I I could narrate the last six hours of my life to you, and all of it would be defined by the anxiety that I was feeling, the way that I was trying to manage everybody else's feelings about me, thoughts I was having. So I came over here. I had... From the thing I was at to being here I had forty five minutes. So I stopped somewhere and I got some dinner. But they had I got a glass of wine, but then I was like, I know Paul doesn't drink, so is that gonna be weird if he thinks I'm I've been drinking or I had a drink? So then I was like, I'm gonna get some coffee to go, so I'm like really peppy. I basically made like a really like a first world speedball. Like, <laughs> it was like a glass of wine chased by some gas station coffee. And it is all this thought of like, and then it's like I, I I was I rented a car at the airport, but they didn't have the kind of car that they had told me. So they gave me this fancy car that I'm driving, mm-hmm. and then I'm pulling up and I'm thinking, what does Paul think? I'm some kind of baller because I'm in this BMW, which is not even my car. Um, I'm all of this stuff is going on in my mind all the time about well, how am I coming off to everybody, yeah. and it
0: you know it can definitely be pretty exhausting. It sounds exhausting. Uh- so it sounds like the the through line of all of this is I need to present the right version of myself so that I'm not rejected. Yes. Yeah. Do you think, and God for, forgive me if I sound like I'm trying to be a fucking therapist, but do you think subconsciously it's the fact that your dad had no int- your biological dad had no interest in your life or do you think it was the just feeling like you're sticking out like a sore thumb because you were so poor or none of the above
1: if it's the biological dad stuff it'd be i think it'd be pretty deep but i'll tell you this um i his sisters so my aunts they've reached out to my mom And are they seem to be totally nice people who are just kind of like, hey, we would love to be friends and know this person who's related to us. I have a half-brother who I've never met who Facebook-friended me. I don't think I accepted it. Yeah. So there's clearly some energy around that. Yeah. Why did you not accept it? I think because I... And better than him? I mean, that's the message I'm trying to send. (laughs) I mean, CBS Sunday Morning... (laughs) Live Wire, Mental Illness, Happy Hour Podcast. It's really coming together. (laughs) Two of those are impressive. Yeah. Um there's not there's only room on this ledge for one (laughs) one Burbank. Uh although this guy would technically not be a Burbank. I think what it feels like to me is well, there's a couple things. One, when I didn't know that this guy, my biological father, was dead, I think if I'm being really honest about it, I think part of me felt like I actually turned out pretty okay, and I didn't want him to think that he got some respo- he got some credit for that. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't want to show up at his door and be like, "Hey, how's it going? Everything's great." Like, I, you know, I came out as a semi-functional adult human. I have a decent job. Like, take the day off from feeling bad about not being here. I think that would be at the at the very kind of foundation of my feelings about that. As it relates to the rest of his family, I think that it just feels like a can of worms that once it gets opened, it can't be. It's like, as my friend Andrew on the, the I do this podcast, TBTL, um, and my buddy Oh, yeah, Andrew, I forgot
0: to mention, Too Beautiful to Live.
1: Yeah, Another. and my, my co-host on that show, he, he will often say, yeah, the toothpaste is out of the tube on that one. <laughs> like, you can't get toothpaste back in a tube. No. Good luck. And I feel like, once the toothpaste gets out of the tube on reuniting with this side of my biological family, it'll be out. And then like, I won't be able to control it right now. It's under my control in that there's no relationship. Yeah. Um, So I guess that's a sort of long winded non answer to your question, which is, is this related to the biological father stuff? Maybe. I mean, it's, it's totally possible. I know that if somebody does something that makes me feel like, They're judging me. I have a, uh, I I go into this reactive state that is intense and has historically sometimes been physical. I used to get in tons of bar fights. Really? Yeah. That's why I started going to therapy and is drinking a problem for you. Um, I think it has been at times. It kind of, it's definitely calmed down a ton in the last few years. Um, but there was a a long period of my life from like my early twenties until my mid thirties where my goal when I started drinking on a given night was to get to the point where I was like pretty incoherent that was what that felt like success <laughs> you know short of that was like what's the point now? I love having one glass of wine and one cup of coffee before I do a, a podcast that's you know you really get into that um that was a joke, not a good joke but <laughs> Um, so, uh, definitely those fights were to, were pretty much fueled by alcohol. But mm-hmm. I mean, I've had, there is a, there's a switch that gets flipped in my head, which thankfully I have some, I've learned some better ways to handle that and some mm-hmm. ways to be mindful and to not just go with that feeling. Mm-hmm. But for a long time in my life, if somebody said the wrong thing to me, if it was a man, I would fight them in like a, in an instant. I think because are you good fighter? Well, (laughs) I'm going to get my ass kicked leaving this building. I'm sure if I say this, but it was, it went okay. I think because nobody really expected it. Part of the thing for me with that stuff was one, just being super sensitive. And two, having this notion that people kind of misidentified me as this kind of like entitled white guy, my friend's joke uh, my one friend in particular, Camaro Kev, always jokes that like when he would hear me say "you're fucking with the wrong motherfucker," <laughs> he knew to just like start clearing the tables. <laughs> that was my like catchphrase, I guess. And that was the when I would have like it'd be like an argument, 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 and then I this thing would happen where I'd just be like, "You're fucking with the wrong motherfucker," and then it was just kind of like go time.
0: That sounds so. Unlike you, you <laughs> you strike me as such a gentle um, person. But then again, some people, when they drink, it's like there's this other thing that, that comes out. Well,
1: in my defense, I guess, I don't know if this is really a defense. I was also capable of doing that when I wasn't drinking. Yeah? It was more emotional than alcohol-related, although the alcohol was definitely... Uh, you know, as a disinhibitor, but it was just this. I, I used to have. This, I mean, when I was a kid, I would get in so many fights. I had to see the school psychologist. I looked at ink blots, like all of this stuff, and it was. I mean, I grew up fighting my whole life. What were the fights about? Nothing. I mean, stupid things like, uh, you know, uh, we would have like a soccer game at recess when I was in fourth grade. It'd be fourth graders against fifth graders, and then. They'd ring the bell, so it was time to line up, and then we'd go line up. And then a couple of the kids from the like, you know, fifth grade would run and kick it in the goal and be like, We won. I could not let that go. And I would just be like, No, you didn't. And this switch would get flipped, or this feeling would happen. And it would be like, Them saying they won this meaningless grade school soccer game is such a threat to me right now that I have to fight them and physically destroy them. Side note, I was about like five one until my junior year of high school. So I was like the worst person to have a fighting problem because I was not big and strong. Oh my God. But I just would be like, I would hit this point where it was like, I have to. And so the fights could be about anything. In my adult life, a lot of times it revolved around guys disrespecting me. Actually not far from here at Hollywood Park Casino down in Inglewood. Because I used to live in L.A. I remember one night a guy saying something at the poker table and me just like he criticized the way I was playing. And I probably said something snide to him and he said something back. And it was almost like I just kind of left my body and just observed myself diving across the poker table to punch this guy in the face.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And breaking my pinky. The craziest thing, and I Did don't... Did you get arrested? No, actually, and this is not an endorsement for fighting at the Hollywood Park Casino, <laughs> but I have to say, the service is pretty amazing. I dive across the table. I punch this guy. Um, they grab me. They grab him. They pick up all my chips and go cash them out at the cage. They take me to the office, and this is at like four in the morning or something, mm-hmm. and they they bring my jacket in and my the money that my chips added up to, and they said, you know, you can't fight here. Here's your money. Here's your jacket. We're really sorry. You're banned from the casino until 9 a.m. That's it. (laughs) It was like a six-hour ban, and I was like, "This is a lot." I was thinking to myself, "This is so much easier than going to the cage to cash my chips out." (laughs) Like this is sort of like a valet service (laughs) where they just get your stuff for you, and then you have to go home and sleep for a few hours, and then you get to come back. So I'm not saying I'm not trying to say this to glorify any of that behavior because what. What's really scary to me looking back on it is how hurt I could have gotten, how much I could have hurt someone and also just the how unnecessary that kind of behavior is, but it speaks to like oh this is the other thing sorry and then I'll stop rambling but you're not rambling. The I think I've had this weird life where i grew up really working class but then somehow i kind of got into this world of public radio which is like real hoity-toity at times very most of the people that do that are like they went to good colleges and they came like their parents were doctors and i never i didn't feel like i fit in in that world and there was something about my i felt like i had i was in I, i was sort of had a foot in two worlds a foot in the world of people who work real jobs and by real jobs, I mean like digging trenches and, Mm -hmm. you know, being plumbers and doing real quote unquote real things. And then this kind of like airy fairy intellectual world. And I think when I thought somebody perceived me to be part of this kind of like intellectual world, I was like, you're fucking with the wrong motherfucker. (laughs) You know, I think that was a big, that that has been a big trigger for me.
0: Well, I, I very much relate to that feeling of um, a switch being flipped when when somebody uh, for me it it really only happens when my adrenaline is, is going and I'm and I have a hockey stick in my hand. Um, the rest of the time I almost can't stand up for myself, but I understand that feeling when you do almost begin to dissociate from. Certainly, from your morality, if if Mm -hmm. not your body, from your morality, where there's a sense of watching yourself, and you know that this isn't the right way to handle it, but you, but it's some somehow it feels like almost like your body, there's steam that has to be let out, otherwise you're going to burn alive if you if you don't let this out in
1: in some way. What's weird is in my experience with this kind of stuff. What's weird is that there's always a point where I kind of have a choice. Yeah. And in the olden days, I would just choose to go for it. But it, it, it wasn't, i maybe, I hope I'm not misdescribing it for me anyway, where it's like, I just, all of a sudden I'm flailing on someone. It's like, there's always a specific moment where I kind of am like, and I remember being in high school and having a, a, like, you know, an argument with this kid, this kid named Tim Mosby. It was probably like, I don't know, 10th grade. It's like right before class starts and I'm saying something to somebody else and then he gets in on the conversation and somehow he and I have words and then we're standing like face to face like we're going to fight and like the bell has rung. So everyone's mm-hmm. just sitting <laughs> and I I realized that I was like I wasn't even that mad anymore, but I had seen this scene in a John Wayne movie where John Wayne did a thing where he, like, pretended like he was turning away, but then he punched the dude. Yeah. Side note, that's a major sucker punch and seems out of character for, like, John Wayne's other, right. like, otherwise his persona of Mr., yeah. you know, Mr., I'm gonna shoot you straight, or whatever. <laughs> um, I have a, a killer John Wayne impression that you just got to hear. <laughs> and I remember thinking, I wonder what it would feel like to punch this guy in the face. And I had seen this John Wayne move, and I thought, eh, I guess I'll use it here. And I didn't even really want to be in a fight anymore. Yeah. But I was like, okay, I turned away like turned around and then punched him. Here's the thing that people don't know about face punches in real life. They sound like slaps. They do. They are not cool. So I punched this kid. And and I often hurt your hand worse than their face. This girl in the class goes, did he just slap him? (laughs) It was like the most uncool move. And I was immediately flooded with so much regret. I just... Left the classroom, I went directly to the principal's office. I like, I like, self-reported to jail, and the principal was like, "What are you doing here?" I was also there a lot, and and I was like, "I just punched Tim Mosby." I don't know why I did that.
0: What when? do you What do you think that was about?
1: Um, probably something getting stimulated in me that feeling of inadequacy or being judged by someone. So him saying something to me about whatever it was, something that felt critical. Mm -hmm. Probably feeling like the whole class is watching me. What do I do now? And also just wanting, you know, to see if that John Wayne move worked, which it did and didn't, you know? I landed a clean shot, but it wasn't cool. Um, Probably a combination of those things. This stuff is so surprising about you. Well, I think the thing about my personality is that Because that's, like, something that I have the capability of being 1% of the time, Mm -hmm. I think that the other 99% of the time I'm probably more or less overcompensating. Like, my wife would tell you, I think, that I am the absolute sweetest person that she's ever met, except for the times when I'm being a complete nightmare. (laughs) You know? And that's that's another thing that I have a really hard time with is just... I know what I know what punching dudes feels like and I know what being deeply in love feels like and all that stuff that's in the middle feels like I don't know how deep the pool is and it really scares me cuz I don't
0: know where the bottom is you know So well, I What do you mean by that like you you're comfortable living on the extremes yeah. of of emotions of yeah. being deep in peace and love yeah. and but but nuanced emotion is not in your wheelhouse It's something that is the the middle or complicated, complex. complicated,
1: complicated, um the yeah, the, the middle part of life, which is it turns out most of life. <laughs> so, Paul, you know what? <clears throat> as long as soon as I learn how to cope during most of life, <laughs> I'll really have this thing licked. No, it's like I I know what the I know what the two extreme ways of being are. That I know what those feel like, and those feel really great to me. Like and when I say in love, I, I mean also I mean romantic love, but also just like friendship and anything that I'm doing. When it's going well and it's really happening, that feels great. And then when it's like fuck this, that doesn't feel great, but at least I know what that's su- supposed Mm -hmm. to feel like and go like
0: do you think that middle part is what contributes to i'm just going to focus on getting to the next ledge so i don't have to feel this uh that's probably discomfort with too many unknowns i mean another kind of through line i see in your stuff is the is the need to control because to to be at the mercy of um what the world has to offer it sounds like terr terrifies you, which makes sense, because I think most of us are terrified by how the dice may be rolled.
1: Yeah. If I can't control how other people are perceiving me, what if they don't like me? Well, then I die. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's and 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 yeah, I, I just. I think that I'm and I'm getting I've gotten a little better about this, but I think that, you know, one of the big things that's sort of animating a lot of my behavior is. This real discomfort being in the gray area of life, mm-hmm. and as I already said, that's what most of life is and and so that has been challenging for me at times.
0: Let's go back to some some fears. Give me some more fears of yours um
1: well, that I have been a pretty lousy dad. I have a daughter who's twenty two mm-hmm. and I was seventeen when she was born, as I like to say, because I felt like it was time. You know, you just get to the point where you've done the whole junior year thing and you're ready. Um, and I I definitely I feel like I was doing the best job with the like with well, the tool you had with the tool I had, um, which was, you know, looking back on it, still not good enough. And uh, so that's that's a fear that I have that I really missed an opportunity there. And that have you talked to her? Oh yeah. Extensive. Oh, I mean, we're like really
0: close. And have you talked to her about that saying, yeah. you know, listen, I feel like I yeah. didn't do as good of a job as I could have.
1: Yeah, I have. And I mean, I hope that I have, we've talked about that kind of stuff. What did she say when you said that? She acknowledges that she, you know, she says she appreciates me being aware of that kind of stuff and trying. Um, so I, I, I think it's a step in the right direction, but I really just wish that I would have been uh somehow uh just more mature you know I think that and and I'm talking about like into my like mid thirties like late thirties i'm side note I'm only forty, so we're talking about now three months I've had my shit together Paul. <laughs> um I just think that i I move through the world most of the time thinking what is making me the most happy in this five minutes of my life. And that's like, it's not really what you want from a dad. <laughs> you know, being a good dad is about putting that, being a good parent is about putting that stuff aside. Um, and uh, I think I could have done a better job of that. Um, so that's a fear that, uh, that I wasn't good at that. Do you, fe-
0: do you fear that you've damaged her? Or is that too strong?
1: Well, Huh, that's a really good question. I mean, I feel like my hang ups probably come from ways that my parents were unintentionally not creating uh an environment of total support and love. I mean, I think that their intentions were good, but they just were you know, my parents were like also really young when mm-hmm. when when they were raising me and all these kids, they were kinda in over their head, I think. Um so if I'm applying that same logic to my my daughter's experience, I mean yeah, I fear that if she's walking around with stuff that's not helping her and mm-hmm. ways like I think when I saw her getting her first bar fight, I knew <laughs> I knew that she was a chip <laughs> off the old block. Uh but yeah, I do I do worry that I've saddled her with some stuff that she's gonna have to work through. Yeah. Um
0: The fact that you talk to her about that though is so huge. I think the thing that really drives kids crazy, or at least you know, even adult children crazy, is the sweeping the shit under the rug when the parent won't even deal with it. Um I, I think most human beings have a large capacity to forgive. And um that's I mean, that's all I really ask in a friendship is, you know, yeah, you can be a dick sometimes, but just if you cop to your shit and apologize, I'm I'm back to square one
1: with you. That's my hope with my daughter, with my wife, with my exes, (laughs) with my family, with everybody, you know, um, is that at least if I can get to the point where I can be honest and and say hey you know i really didn't do a good job with that and i recognize that my hope is that that at least helps take some of the edge off um because i make a lot of mistakes i don't know why this is coming into my mind this you want to talk about apropos of nothing like the the (laughs) how finely tuned my like sensor is for like just mild disagreement i remember when i used to i used to have this um daily radio show on a talk radio station in seattle And there was this person who used to sometimes do the news on the station. And she and I just kind of weren't – we're just not cut from the same cloth. We're not interested in the same kinds of things. We just weren't – you know, you meet those kind of people where you're just like, we just don't get each other. And I remember we were having like a pitch meeting before the show talking about the different news stories. And like I proposed a story. And she, from her perch over where she was, said like, yeah, I don't think that's interesting, which is just her opinion. Mm -hmm. I was also the host of the show. I outranked her. I could just be like, well, okay, you don't agree, but I, you know, am in charge of this essentially. Mm-hmm. When she said, "Yeah, I don't really think that's interesting." I wanted to walk over and take her entire desk and tip it over and like stomp on her pictures of her kids because she said to me, "Yeah, I don't think
0: that story is interesting." Do you think it was what she said or how it she said it to you or both? Like if she had expressed that that wasn't a compelling idea to her in a way that was nuanced and um, was diplomatic. Mm-hmm. Would the anger have been there as much? No, it would have hugely helped if she
1: would have just, yeah, if she would have sort of uh, gently and carefully said to me, you know, if she would have said something along the lines of like, well, I can understand why, yeah. uh, you know, that's appealing to you. But here's the thing. Maybe I'm not sure if you've thought, et cetera, et cetera. Right. If she public radioed it up, I would have probably been like, yeah, oh, okay. I'm just going to knock the pencil off your desk. Just Yeah, just walk over and just take your public radio coffee mug and just gently <laughs> smash it into a thousand bits. I think that the um, the way that people deliver information to me has a huge impact on how I react. But what I'd like to get to is the point where I am emotionally capable of also hearing non-nuanced negative feedback and also be okay with that i'll have times where i'm driving i'm not a typically like a road rager person but if the mood strikes me if somebody kind of gives me an exasperated like uh, i will feel so angry that i just want i followed a guy for like 20 miles in seattle of maybe a year ago i was driving and there was a complicated thing with a red light where I was coming from this angled street and I couldn't actually tell that the red light applied to me. Mm-hmm. So I, I ran the red That's light. That's just
0: good city planning.
1: Yes, exactly. So I um, they should have had the people from shoots and ladders. <laughs> Does I, I mean, it's, it's cool when you hit the good ladder and you get to go all the way to the top. But some of those shoots are very dangerous. So I blow through this light. It's like a Sunday morning. There's not anybody else around. And, but I'm like, and I realized midway through, Oh my goodness gracious. That was for me. So I get to the next light and I'm sitting there and this guy pulls up next to me. And because this is Seattle and I know you also drive this kind of car, so don't take any judgment, but of course the guy's in a Prius Mm -hmm. and he like rolls down the window and he looks at me and he goes like, get off your phone, jackass. (laughs) Now I was not on my phone when I drove through that red light. I was just confused. I was really upset by this guy saying that to me. Like, and I drive this old kind of ratty Toyota 4Runner. It's got like a quarter of a million miles on it. And he was in his little Prius. And I was like, in my mind, you're fucking with the wrong motherfucker. (laughs) And so I was not going the direction this guy was going, but I just pulled right behind him, followed him. He got on this highway that has no exits from it. And in fact, you may know if you've been to Seattle, it's the Highway 99 viaduct. It's this elevated section of roadway that goes for miles in Seattle. I got on this thing and I just hugged his ass and I followed him all along 99 off the freeway into neighborhoods. And I just wanted him to be afraid. Wow. I just wanted him to know that he was fucking with the wrong motherfucker, that you can't just yell get off your phone asshole to people when they're not on their phones. (laughs) I felt like I needed to write that.
0: What seemed to me to be a huge injustice. And, and was it a cathartic experience? Was it satisfying to you to do that? Or did you feel
1: it was, but in a terrible way, because what I was enjoying as I was driving behind this guy, and by the way, I was laughing maniacally to myself. Um, I know you have a silent alarm here in the studio, and anytime you want, anytime you want to activate it, um, you know when the cops show up, I'll just I'll like tip of the cap, Gil Martin, well played, and they'll lead me away. But I was just like, left. I just
0: love the idea that a guy who slugs people at a poker table also uses the phrase "Goodness gracious." <laughs> that is how complex of a human being you are. I just contain multitudes, my
1: friend. Um, I th- I was laughing maniacally as I was driving behind this guy. And what I was enjoying about it was what I imagined the conversation to be between this guy and the other person in the car. And I can't remember if it was a man or a woman. Mm-hmm. But what I can bet you dollars to donuts was happening was that the other person was saying, why did you say that? Why <laughs> did you have to do that, And you were Gary? enjoying that. I was loving that I was making that conversation happen. Yeah. Because this guy... That was driving this Prius. This is all this like, mm-hmm. you know, Woody Allen-esque, yeah. you know, fantasy conversation that I'm imagining these two people are happening. What I was imagining was happening to this guy was that he was deeply regretting having said that to me. And the so, fact that his wife or husband or whoever it was, was just like going to be mad at him all day yeah. about getting a psychopath heat-seeking mm-hmm.
0: missile on their tail. Yeah. So, so not only had you gloriously accomplished what this other person thought of you. You had changed it from I look down on you to I'm afraid of you. But you had also changed how this person's friend thought of them. In my kind of warped
1: fantasy of what was going on. It was probably true. Maybe there's also, you know, there's a different world in which I could just think, yeah, people say things. You know, like that's a world that I, I I really hope. And this is the second time I'm saying this. I hope it doesn't sound like I'm trying to make light of this kind of stuff because it would be so much better in my life. And it has been to the degree that I've been able to implement this. It's so much better in my life to just think, yeah, people say things. If I wasn't so – this is the kind of – this is the thing that I – The
0: fact – you know, Luke, the fact that you've listened to dozens of episodes of this podcast to me shows that you are somebody who is a seeker, who wants inner peace, that that doesn't – you know, people who listen to this podcast are not the type of people that glorify violence, that glorify other people getting – getting hurt
1: so i don't think anybody but i do worry that i'm i'm kind of in a way i'm making myself still the like comic hero of these stories and really it's like somebody got home and was like some dude drove one foot behind our car for 12 miles through ballard like it was really scary we didn't know if we should call the cops you know what i mean like that's the other side of this story and I, i i'm aware of that i the the analogy that i've kind of come up with And I think this is decent, by the way. I really hope this catches on on the Mental Illness Happy Hour podcast. (laughs) What I don't have is I don't have an emotional gyroscope. You know, gyroscopes are the things that keep things stable. Like a Segway scooter has a gyroscope in it. Gyroscopic force steadies things. Mm -hmm. Or a simpler analogy would be like those um, punching bags that have sand in the bottom of them. Mm -hmm. You hit them and then they fall over, but they come back up because they have sand in the bottom. That sand, I think, is feeling okay about yourself. That gyroscope is 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 being okay with who you are. I don't have that a lot of the time, so when somebody knocks me over, I'm dead. I have to follow them for 12 miles. <laughs> I, w- I would like to get my emotional gyroscope spinning a little better so that I kind of go over and I come back up and I'm like, "Hey, boy, that guy that guy misunderstood that situation.
0: I think so many people listening right now relate to exactly what you just said. I was at my favorite coffee place on time and I get so excited when I'm there cuz I just love it. It feels like home. I love their coffee, I love their tea. I know people there. And and I was I can't remember what I was doing, but I was standing like in front of the newspaper rack and this woman reached in front of me and grabbed a newspaper, but she looked at me like <sighs> Like I was being the rudest person in in the world and I don't even know what it was I'd done, but it was, she looked at me with a look of disgust and I remember just feeling fire starting from my belly, flushing across and my head felt like it was on fire and I didn't say anything, but it bothered me for two straight days. For two straight days, I kept thinking of what I should have said, you know, I, I, I Shared it with people. That God, I just wanted. To, who is this person? Here's what I should have said. I I get it, man. I get that. I get that feeling. Yeah, because I followed her for 12 miles. Yeah,
1: I bet she. I bet she saw the error of her ways she, after that. She, she.
0: She never made a face near a newspaper again. Right?
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh man, I know that kind of feeling so well that you're describing of just like those little. You know, those little moments where somebody finds you wanting, you know, you're getting on the plane. I was getting on the plane not that long ago, and I was putting my bag up, mm-hmm. and it has a long kind of shoulder strap, mm-hmm. and it kind of, like, grazed the guy. Mm-hmm. And he just gave me this withering look. This is, like, 6 in the morning. And I just looked at him and I said, everything fucking okay? <laughs> And he got so (laughs) scared. This is like an Alaska Airlines flight. This is like, again, this could get you like kicked off the plane. But I was just kind of like, this guy's not going to, this guy's not going to give me a look like I'm just trying to hit people in the head with this arms like this. What do you think? What do you think
0: is? Do you think that's going to get an apology by looking at somebody like they're, you know, I'm not asking you that, that guy, it's.
1: Well, I mean the thing is it's like – what's so funny is if I look back on it or if I think about it kind of with a a certain amount of distance, it's like he just made a face because his head got hit by a strap, which is the normal human reaction. But that face, probably not unlike that woman giving you that look about the newspaper, it just – cut me to my core. Do
0: you think it's because we believe deep down that we might truly be dislikable people who don't realize how unpleasant our our presence is? Yes,
1: because this hypervigilance thing, this constant scanning of the horizon for, for people who are judging me is a way of trying to stay out in front of that information so that I am, as we already talked about, not the last one to get the memo. So that must indicate that I feel like that's kind of true who i am yeah and so when when someone demonstrates now what's weird is you would think that my reaction if i think everyone kind of doesn't like me and when someone is showing that they don't like me you think my reaction would be like i hear you buddy <laughs> you know what i mean you'd yeah. be like yeah you know what we're on the same team yep you are you are doing the thing that i assume everyone's doing <laughs> all the time but for some reason my reaction to it is like must destroy <laughs>
0: You think you think I'm a piece of shit. You should see how I look at myself in the mirror. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Let's uh, let's do a couple of loves. Take it out with a couple of loves. I
1: I seriously think uh, like I am okay. So I just described all of the like intense kind of. Oh, are we skipping anything that that you would like to talk about? So
0: I don't. I feel like we, we we went pretty deep.
1: Yeah, I still wish I just had like at least a little bit of like dissociative something that I could throw down. Just I want to be I want to be delivering on the promise of mental illness and mostly it's
0: just like mental annoyance. You got to understand how important these episodes are though, Luke. Well, They're so I, important I, to people out there that don't have big identifying
1: moments in their life. Well, can I say this too before I get into some loves? Mm-hmm. You know, this show has been This show has been so important to me and it is hearing other people's experience and wherever they're at on the sort of spectrum of of mental illness or emotional challenges or whatever's going on for them. I will go on these long walks and listen to the show and I'll come back and I'll just like sit my wife down and I'll be like, hey, you know, I want to really apologize about when I did this thing or, Hey, I want to tell you that when you talked about this, like I hear where you're coming from. Like this show has really, it has really impacted my life. Wow. Thank you. And, and so to the degree that I'm not delivering, uh, on like, you know, the, the, the stuff that's diagnosable, I guess, during this show for all the people that are, I want to say thanks to them for coming on the show and sharing their experience because it's been really meaningful to me.
0: Well, thank Um, you for saying that
1: getting to the loves. The, the dark side, the, the, the maybe not great side of the coin is that I will fight people over almost anything. The other side of that coin is, like, I feel so much love. I'm probably describing, essentially, like, manic behavior here, really, if you think about it. <laughs> but, like, my loves are so strong. Like, I was driving over here, and I was listening to two songs on repeat. One was I'm on Fire by Bruce Springsteen. That's such a great song. Fuck
0: song is... Song. Hey, little girl, is your daddy home? Did it go in? I was just like weaving
1: along, you know, I don't know, Koanga or something. Oh, I wrote this on Twitter today, but this is true. If you ever doubt science's ability to solve problems, the GPS in my car today perfectly pronounced Koanga. No. I mean, that's unreal that they have figured out how to make that happen. That's incredible. Yeah. Most people that live
0: here don't even know right? how to pronounce Cahuenga.
1: Yeah. So... I think we're going to be okay. Just if the, you know, if they could put that, whatever team of scientists worked on that, to put them on cancer and global warming, we'll be all right. Cause that is a more difficult challenge, I think. But I'm like listening. What was the other song? The, it Fandom, was the Phantom Planet? It was the Phantom Planet cover of Our House by Crosby, uh, Stills and Nash. I don't think Young was in there at that point. I think it's yeah. just Crosby, Stills and Nash. I was listening to that music and I was like, it was just a beautiful night here in Southern California and I'm cruising along the road. I'm listening to that music and I'm just crying. Really? Yeah. Just because I felt great about Be I love Southern California. I really love LA, uh, which is not a thing people say a lot unless they're Randy Newman singing the song. I love LA, (laughs) but I love Los Angeles and I love like, I'll listen to music. I'm trying to think, There was a song I was listening to. Well, there's this John Prine song. It's actually a John Prine cover of a song by a guy named Blaze Foley. It's uh, called Clay Pigeons. And Love John Prine. Oh, man. I was listening to that song in the – I got out of the shower the other day. I was listening to it. I just started crying as I was, like, shaving. And this sounds pretty like I'm having stability problems, but it's that there are a lot of moments where I just feel like, this is as good as it gets, like in a good way. Mm-hmm. Like this is this is one of those moments of pure happiness. This is one of those moments of really being present. Mm-hmm. And I just, I get overwhelmed and I'm so happy. And I one of the things that I struggle with is not being present enough. And every once in a while when that stuff peaks in, when that happens, I just, I love it so much, you know. So my loves are like, I love hearing the right song at the right moment. That's a great one. I mean, it's, it goes without saying that I, I love my daughter so much that I, I have a hard time talking about it without, you know, feeling kind of emotional. And I love my wife so much. And I do this, there's this park by our house and I do the, I try to do this jog most days and there's this bridge over this waterfall. And I stop on the bridge and I try to go through a mental inventory of all the things that I feel really lucky about. And, um, when I go through that little inventory and I think about my wife and I think about my kid and I think about my, my fam and I think about even, like, the people I work with and even the people who listen to the podcasts I do, I sometimes just start crying on this bridge and there's always tourists on it. And they must just think there is a complete maniac out there. Like, who's just standing on this bridge listening to Bruce
0: Springsteen crying? <laughs> I bet you some of those people think, I wish I had the balls to sit on a, on a bridge and... And be moved by. They probably by think something. I'm going to jump. <laughs>
1: they probably do. I take back what I yeah. said. <laughs> it's not high enough to die. It Would yeah. just be like you'd kind of hurt yourself. Yeah. But, um, so yeah, I love moments like that, and I, I love it's, being here talking to you. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like I'm just tagging that, like I'm throwing that on, so that you'll like me more. But I do like I love conversations like this, and me too. um, and I just am. Uh, I'm a huge fan of what you're doing here, and I, I think it's so important. I'm really, really glad it exists. Can I throw one more love in? Yeah. And then uh, you haven't done any. Maybe you don't um, feel I'll, inspired. I'll think,
0: I'll, I'll think about one while uh, while you're doing that
1: one. I love the smell of the cement when it hasn't rained in a long time. Yes. And it, the first time it rains, and it's kind of like dusty, and you can almost yes. like – it's almost like in your teeth. It's it like, like an almost palpable mouth feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, please edit that out. <laughs> Uh, I love that smell. Like it just reminds me of being a kid and uh, I really like it.
0: This is a weird one, but it happened the other day. I love the feeling right after you clip your toenails and you Uh, put a pair of socks on. Oh my God. It's so,
1: I have this, this one toe that's always trying to go ingrown toenail on me, yeah, it's always trying to go rogue, <laughs> and I have this whole system where I clip it in a certain way, and then when I pull it, yeah, it pulls out the in the part that's about to be ingrown. Mm-hmm. And when I do that, and it works, oh, that must be glorious. It's orgasmic. It's like a big like a big poop. I'm also jacking off while I do it, so that's why wouldn't you? But yeah, that like we call
0: that juggling. <laughs> Uh, I just juggled in the bathroom, Yeah, that was all right. It's a good, it's a good bathroom
1: juggle. Yeah. (laughs) Um, well, thanks for having me on, man. I've really, I've really appreciated this. As I said to you when you were on the, on Livewire, this is by far and away the most nervous I've been to be on a radio show or podcast in years. Wow. Because I know how devoted your listeners are. Like, this is the thing. I know that for a lot of people... This show is a lifeline. They they look forward to it all week. When it comes out, there is like they plan their day around it. Like it's a big thing, and so I know how important it is for the show to not suck.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, you delivered, and uh, I I hope this is the beginning of a a long friendship between us. Um, Or the or this is it. This is the end. You decide we'll figure it out. You know what? You go home, I go home yeah. and then we'll we'll get in touch and decide if uh we need to stay together. I mean together the thing is not. we're
1: going to be leaving at about the same time and if you say even one fucking thing to me about my driving, I will follow you home. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't want to fuck with the wrong motherfucker. That's it. That's all. You're fucking with the wrong podcaster. <laughs> Luke Burbank, if people want to check out LiveWire, they can go to, um, livewireradio.org is, uh, the home base for that. Uh,
1: this other show, TBTL. Too beautiful to live. Yeah, TBTL.net. And that's a daily podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, those would be, those would be, you know, I'm just gonna stop myself from saying if you tune into TBTL and you hate it, I totally understand. <laughs> Do you ever say that with this show? Like when people are asking oh, me about absolutely. it. I,
0: I apologize when I sometimes ask people to be a guest. Say, I'll say, I will host a podcast called Mental Illness Happy Hour. I think you'd be perfect. <laughs>
1: I just, I'm always, like this other fear is people will hear about TBTL. They'll tune into like a show that was kind of flat. Mm-hmm. They'll just be like, this is oh. terrible. So I'm always like, try to listen for like four episodes. And if you don't like it, I totally get it. I don't even like it, you know. <laughs> So with putting aside all those disclaimers, yeah, TBTL.net, that's another show that I'm doing.
0: And you can follow Luke at Luke Burbank on uh, on Twitter. Luke, thank you so much, buddy. Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate it. I got to say, I think I fucked with the right motherfucker. It was so much fun talking to him. Um, Before I take it out with some surveys, I want to give some love to our sponsor, Squarespace. Uh, They have been so good to this podcast. Um, not only do they have a great product, um, I've used it. I put a website together for my dog pictures and my music. If you want to check it out, it's uh, paul-gilmartin.squarespace.com. And, uh, it took me about two hours and it, I couldn't be happier with it. It's had no problems with it. It's super intuitive and, uh, doesn't matter what you're putting together. It's just a landing page. Maybe it's a gallery of things. Maybe it's a, you know, professional blog or an online store—it's uh, all included with your Squarespace uh, website. It's—they um, got templates that are beautiful. Um, they have 24-hour, 24/7 uh, actually uh, customer support, and uh, Squarespace is trusted by hundreds of thousands. Of savvy shop owners around the world, um, everybody I've recommended it to has had a great experience with it. So, uh, start a free trial today at squarespace.com, and then use the offer code mental for ten percent off your first purchase. And uh, it would be great for uh, for you to do that because then it shows Squarespace that our listeners do um, listen to the ads and uh, buy the products and then Squarespace would uh, advertise with us some more and we would like that. So again, start your free trial today at squarespace.com and use the offer code MENTAL for 10% off your first purchase. This first thing I want to read is this is uh, an email that I got and this was from a guy I can't remember if he wanted his name mentioned or not. But he just writes, "Uh, I'm a social worker and also a person who's dealing with depression, anxiety, PTSD, earned on and off the job, and suicidal ideation. As you might know, there are a lot of us wounded healers out there. And I got to say, uh, people, uh, therapists who have worked through their stuff and processed it are the best therapists because they don't, they didn't read about how you feel, they know how you feel. Anyway, continuing. Uh, I also want to say thank you. Oh, no. Uh, consider sharing the information for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline on your show, since it could be a life-saving resource for some of your listeners. I've taken calls at the Lifeline, and I can say they help a lot of people. And that address is um, lifeline. Dot org. Once again, that's suicidepreventionlifeline.org. So um, thank you for that. This isn't. Uh, this is a survey. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Kitty Friend, and she is pansexual in her twenties, raised in a totally chaotic environment, um, was a victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. She writes, it has ruined my ability to feel completely safe with anyone I've been with, including my partners of years and years, and has destroyed my relationships. I've never told anyone in my family what happened because I want to protect them from it. They are also also are convinced I got the least of the abuse in the home, and I feel like being the shoulders of the family. It would ruin them to know what I went through. I will bear my pain knowing that they have one less thing in their life. It hurts every time they refer to my relationship with my abuser as being his, quote, angel because I was fawned over the most and received his physical abuse the least. My stepbrother tries to reunite me with my abuser and constantly is upset with me for having no contact with him. He doesn't understand that though we, he can forgive him, I can only sit and wait till he dies so I can get my relief. I fear when he does, I will have to converse with my stepbrother to why I won't attend his funeral. And I'm, first of all, I'm so sorry that you had to experience that, and I'm so sorry that you feel like you can't burden your family. But as I was reading this survey, I just had the image of somebody carrying a couch up the stairs on their back and other people just standing there watching them, and that person with the couch saying, "I just it's too much to ask them to pitch in. You are carrying a huge, huge weight, and you're denying your family members the chance to love you even more deeply. Who knows how your family will react? Only you can can know that. But trying to protect people is in my opinion one of the most common mistakes that that survivors make. Now that's not to be confused with somebody not sharing something because that person's not safe. That I think can be a very healthy and uh, self-protective thing to do, but um, your family can handle it. And you know what? It, it Them crying, them being worried about you is not going to kill them. But you holding on to this, um, they might. You never know. All right, continuing. Uh, she's been physically and emotionally abused. I have a guilt complex that has completely ruined my ability to function normally in society, whatever that is. My stepfather routinely beat my stepbrother and mother and forced me to watch as a lesson. He hit me occasionally, but nowhere near the amount he hit my brother and mother. I remember being about 10 and my stepdad screaming at my brother and my mother, uh, screaming at my brother and my mother, stepping in to protect him. My stepfather started wailing on my mother and my brother, 11 years old, yelling, is this how you treat a woman? All the while, I was cowered on the stairs, crying stop and wishing I could jump between them and take some of the pain so they didn't have to bear it all. Um, but you know what? Even though they got physically hit, you you were bearing the pain. You were bearing the pain. Just witnessing something like that is... I mean, positive experiences... No, even the quote good moments were ruined by the constant illness of being stressed and scared. Darkest thoughts, I think about slowly killing my stepfather, recreating all the pain he put on my family and watching an absolute pleasure. I want to slowly bruise every part of his body and inject him with Drano so he can feel the physical pain my body has gone through trying to handle what he has done to me. I want him to feel, I want his, oh, his body to feel uh, the bleeding ulcers I had, every gut rot after taking too many pills and the agonizing screams in my head trying to cover up the memories. I would tell him the whole time how worthless he is, just like he told my brother and I darkest secrets. My deepest secret is lying to my mom for years, letting her believe I am okay, and agreeing with her when she tells me I was the luckiest of the three of us. I lie to her about my mental illness, my medications, and my general state of well-being. I lied to her when I slipped my wrist. I even broke the glass on the shower door and told her I had a fall so she wouldn't know how weak I was. It has nothing to do with weak. That That is About pain, so she wouldn't know how deeply in pain I was, and I would maybe even ask, say, maybe too, um, uh, I don't know, too afraid to ask for help, too proud to ask for help. I don't know, I shouldn't assign feelings to, to why you're not, um, sharing it with them, but, um. Anyway, continuing Uh, sexual fantasies most powerful to you my sexual fantasy that i've never acted out but think about almost hourly is having someone sit in the empty bathtub with me with very full bladders and being able to release them together just the intimacy of being so vulnerable and trusting with someone and feeling this complete warmth uh release with them we would hold each other's tummies and feel the loss of pressure I am not interested in piss fetish uh, that is degrading, only from a place of comfort and what, what I view as sweetness. I think this goes back to wetting myself in grade school and my teacher protecting me from anyone else finding out and provided me with this comfort and love that I didn't feel at home. I know that if that happened in the home, I would have been degraded, and I remember the shock of someone accepting me and holding me when I felt disgusted by myself. It is one of the most beautiful things. Um... I've read doing the podcast and that is, um, that's just beautiful that that's, um, not only how you can trace it back to that, but it does seem like a really beautiful, intimate thing to, to do with some, somebody else. Cause I mean, isn't ultimately that's what sex is about is being vulnerable and accepting each other and, the and the moment. And, uh, yeah, that really touched me. What if anything would you like to say to someone? Uh, I would like to tell my family what I've been through so they can help me with my pain like I have theirs. I will not though, I will never add to that. I couldn't disagree more, I couldn't disagree more. But again, if your family doesn't feel safe, that's a different, that's a different thing. And then I'd like to repeat that a third time. Have you shared these things with others, with a few friends, They have had a hard time accepting it because I have always been the, quote, strong one who takes care of everyone else. They have not provided much comfort because they don't see through the Atlas facade. I am attracted to broken narcissists, so I guess it's my own fault. It is often forgotten by them that I am also in pain and would like someone to listen to and support me. Well, you know, my thought about that is very often people... Judge, react to us based on how we physically, how we, how outwardly uh, emotional we appear. So you may be dying on the inside, but to your friends, they may have no idea that you want to talk more about it. And they can't, they can't read your mind. And it's not fair of you to expect them to read your mind. And you deserve a love and comfort and if you can't get it from your family or your friends i think a support group would be a fantastic place for you to feel that unconditional love and comfort how do you feel after writing these things down i think i'm on too much zoloft to really feel anything haha though i hope someone takes comfort in knowing how having guilt is valid but it doesn't mean you are to blame anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences all of your feelings are valid and you have infinite worth to those around you even if your abuser has made you feel otherwise thank you for that thank you very much for that and i hope you open up to somebody this is an awful awesome moment filled out i love the names filled out by will socialize for cash and uh, she writes, as a child, I was very sensitive to other people's feelings, especially if someone was sad or hurt, it would cause me tremendous anguish. I did everything I could to comfort and make sure I didn't cause pain to anyone. Boy, interesting that this is right after the other one. Um But being a kid, I sometimes went about it in a strange way. One day I was walking home from kindergarten with my mom holding her hand. For some reason, I was getting quite upset thinking about how sad my parents would be if I died. I could imagine, I could imagine them crying at my grave, and I was almost in tears myself. So on our way home, eager to preemptively comfort my mother about my possible demise, I gave her hand a little squeeze, looked her straight in the eyes, and very earnestly told her, that I hoped she would die first. <laughs> oh. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Telly Bear and uh, she writes about her anxiety. Pins pricking my brain. Rats chewing on my lungs. I can't breathe. That is one of the most vivid images ever in the struggle in a sentence survey. Rats chewing on my lungs i also picture the rats between bites uh taking puffs on a cigarette because you know they're no good they're up to no good um (laughs) any comments to make the podcast better herbert's opinion on world news uh, Herbert's opinion on world news is, is actually very limited. Uh, you know, he gets two types of treats that he loves. Uh, one is with bacon and apple and the other one is with turkey. And so the only world events he really cares about are the ones that involve the country, Turkey. He doesn't know that that's not where turkey comes from. But, um, yeah, whenever something about turkey is in the news, um, he runs up to us. And he does it on his hind legs, which I find very human. And he'll lay his paw uh, on my knee and uh, and he'll say um, how much turkey was lost. And I'll say that, again, that country has nothing to do with the food you eat. And then he'll go lick his butthole. This is an awful awesome moment filled out by Manifold Mandala. And he writes, I grew up, with an abusive, alcoholic mother who I supported and parented uh, myself, she would constantly drink too much and wouldn't leave her room. She could not hold down a job because she would sleep about sixteen hours a day. Got four DWIs and would sleep and then drink all day for about fifteen years. After she was sober for a year, I hit a bout of depression. I wasn't living with her anymore, and had and had seen her. I wasn't living with her anymore, and. I think he meant and hadn't seen her. Uh, She asked why I was so skinny. Normally, I wouldn't open up to her, but I had just begun, uh, began trusting her and experimented by building up the courage to tell her I'm in the middle of a pretty hard depression. Her response was, sometimes we just have to suck it up and get over it. When you're feeling sad, you just need to hold it back and get things done. That's how you become an adult. At first, I agreed with her until about a week later. Fuck you, mom. Thank you for that. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Bungle of Nerves. And she is bisexual in her 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, she was drugged and raped. Uh, on more than one occasion, one was by a boyfriend who she then stayed with for five years and um you know that's so common because I think the survivor wants to, to want so badly for what the truth is to not be the truth that we try to do whatever we can to um just believe otherwise. Um, a lot of people will go on a second date with somebody that, um, raped them. And then they'll, and then they'll think that, oh, that, that, then what happened to me wasn't valid because clearly if it was traumatic, I wouldn't have gone. No, because it was traumatic, you went again with that person because you needed in that moment to convince yourself that what happened to you wasn't that bad. Uh, She's not sure if she was physically abused. She writes, I was emotionally neglected by my parents. I was always a very emotional child and cried a lot. I always yelled and was scolded for it. Uh, if it was around other family members, I was mocked. I think that's called Christmas. Any positive experiences with the abusers? I have a lot of good memories about my ex. He was my best friend for years. We went on many holidays together and saw our favorite band multiple times. I still sometimes feel I would have been better off staying with him. I love my parents, and I feel that they did their best. I think, and maybe I'm going on a limb, but I think it's good that you're not with a person that drugs and rapes. Um, darkest thoughts. A lot of my sexual fantasies involve rape that... Degradation or sexual assault. I'm always the victim, but it still makes me feel dirty, like I enjoy what happened to me. I hope you know how how incredibly common that is, and um, I'm, I'm sure you know that it's nothing to be ashamed of. Darkest secrets. When I read or hear about instances of sexual assault against children, particularly graphic depi- depictions in the media, I panic. And become aroused almost at the same time. I hate my body for doing that and am disgusted with myself. Again, super common. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I always fantasize about being raped or chastised while masturbating. I'm disappointed and confused by that regularly. Surely this isn't how emotionally healthy people get off. No, I think that's exactly how people stay Uh Uh, emotionally able to function is because we're able to kind of, uh, put that thing into our, uh, into our sexuality. (laughs) Our, our sexuality is almost kind of like, uh, the, the, the things that turn us on is like, uh, the appendix of our genitalia. It's, uh, it's just where the, the weird shit gets moved to. Um, I, I don't know that much about medicine, uh, but I am a hypochondriac. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my mom, I love you. I know you tried your best. I know Nan was never very open with you emotionally and you didn't know how to provide that to me as a child, but it's okay because I love you and dad unconditionally with all my heart. That's so beautiful. What, if anything, do you wish for that me soothing my brother when he was chastised for crying helped him, that I, in some way, made his life a bit better? Better and easier, that he doesn't struggle with his emotions like I do, that he loves himself and is safe and happy, that he knows how much I love him. That's beautiful. Have you shared these things with others? No, I would tell my brother, no, I tell my brother I love him regularly as well as my parents, but I would never say as much as I've said here. I would be too worried about hurting my mother. I've spent most of my life worrying about her emotions over my own. It's the one thing I don't think I'll be able to kick. How do you feel after writing these things down? My heart feels heavy, but I feel unburdened. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? It's hard to believe and I rarely believe it myself, but you are an important. You are important and you matter, and your worth doesn't lie in the money you make or the people you know. You're just worth something because you are here. Totally agree. Totally agree. Thank you for that. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself anxiety or just a meth habit, question mark, um, about her anxiety. I've completed, glued, and framed 30 jigsaw puzzles in the last four months when I should have been solving my real problems. Well, I wonder how much of that is anxiety and how much of that was uh, the drugs, because it sounds uh, later in the survey, you talk about smoking meth, and that seems like a very methy uh, kind of. Um, I don't know what we do. A hobby. Um, thirty. I don't even know there's there's thirty jigsaw puzzles. I mean, you got the you got the cat, you got the Eiffel Tower, um, you got uh, maybe uh, some fancy building in Italy. You got a landscape. You got a dog. Um. You got Herbert's butthole. And you got Hitler picking his nose. I'm not sure where the other ones would uh, would come in. About uh, her alcoholism and drug addiction. I never told my therapist that I never got clean. Now the only one who knows the truth is my dealer. Wow, that's heavy. Um. About her OCD, my nipple ring won't heal because I've been picking the scab for two years and I just don't want to stop. I can't imagine that the meth is helping the not picking your skin. About her PTSD, can you get PTSD from being a cock-hungry drug disposal throughout your entire adolescence? Trauma was a bi-weekly occurrence. Um, I assume you're being sarcastic. I'm so sorry that you had to, a that you had to experience and b that you that you look at the things that you did as a moral failing instead of a reaction to the pain the overwhelming pain that you must have been in to need to self-medicate yourself um about experiencing sexual bias. Um, I'm outraged or I'm not sure if this is about her feeling biased or her being biased. I'm outraged when you don't respect me, but please tell me how pretty I am. Snapshot from her life. As long as I can keep buying meth, I won't drop out of college. I poured my entire stash into a cup of coffee. When I got home later, my dad... Had unusually gone into my room looking for dirty dishes, picked up the only thing, and dumped sixty dollars of life juice down the drain. I want to destroy him, and he doesn't have a clue. Wow, wow, um you know you wrote as long as I can keep buying meth, I won't drop out of college. I wouldn't be so sure about that because if you're an addict and it sounds like you are, you don't decide what happens when you're using it's you're you become a slave to that thing. And I mean, that's what powerlessness really is. And, um, it, uh, I hope you get help. I hope you get help. Um, it's such an ugly drug. God, the people that I've seen it ravage, um, And you're pretty young, I think. What are you? You're in your 20s. Yeah, please go get help. Please go get help. This is filled out. I love your guys' names by a guy who calls himself Dirt (laughs) Bag. It's two separate names, though Dirt and Bag. He doesn't combine them. He doesn't deserve for them to touch. That's why. He's never been sexually abused. He is, I can't see the age. I think it says he's in his thirties. He was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Mm. He's straight. He's never been, I said, never been sexually abused. He's been emotionally abused. As a child, my stepfather would tease about my weight and also my stepmother. So I got it on both sides of the family. I was born half white, half Hispanic. I look white. And going to elementary and junior high was in mainly Hispanic areas. So I was also teased and in fights for being white and chubby. So I wasn't brown enough. I got chased after school by a kid and his father because they wanted my shoes. Stuff like that. And not having a quote father around to help and teach me anything. Well, <laughs> I had a father around and he didn't <laughs> teach teach me much or help me much so uh, even if your father is physically present um, that's not a guarantee they're going to be they're going to be interested in your life that's not to say my dad didn't ever do you know nice or decent things but any positive experiences with the abusers I was not physically abused but my mom was my mom was by my stepfather and I witnessed it but if I was told to clean up his beer cans that he and his friends threw in the yard from the night before, I would tell her to get him to do it since it's his mess, and those comments would get me slapped. So she always chose him first before me. You know, I think picking up Stepfather's beer cans might be my favorite Norman Rockwell painting. it I don't know if it's the excited look on the kid's face with the crude cut uh, as he's gathering them up into his arms or if it's the the stepdad's stubble and his dead eyes. It's, uh, it's so well balanced and you can't see this unless it's an original but there's a very tiny mustard stain on uh, stepdad's undershirt just in case you ever uh, go to the Met. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself still trying to think of one after half an hour uh, about her PTSD. Like, you are the owner of a well-meaning yet high-strung dog who is also a part of you, who sees everything as a serious threat and will do anything to protect her owner. That is a great one. About being a sex crime victim. Like an ugly stain that you wash off each day, but it keeps coming back until finally you decide to draw over it and to turn it into something beautiful. Wow. Wow. That's profound. That's profound. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself uh, either Nan or Non. Uh, He writes, "I've struggled with anger and frustration issues since I was very young. Most." Of the time, these feelings have been directed towards myself, which makes me think they might be related to depression or anxiety. I'm currently seeing a therapist for these issues. Earlier this morning, I was having breakfast with my roommate at our house, and he was showing me one of his textbooks. While I was reading it, I choked on my coffee and ended up spewing it across the table and all over his book. I was overcome with shame and anger at myself, even though my roommate insisted it wasn't that big of a deal. I waited until he left before my rage completely took over. I took a bunch of ice cubes from our freezer, went into the backyard, and threw them all against the side of the house. I've heard that doing this can give you the satisfaction of breaking things without any permanent property damage. After I had finished... I was left uh, dealing with the residual sadness and anger. But I also realized something about this anger that I've been discussing with my therapist. I realized the anger was coming from a place of concern for my roommate and guilt of ruining his book. I now know that if I were a complete asshole, I wouldn't have cared that I ruined his book. So even though I'm struggling with controlling these negative feelings, I know that it's okay for me to feel them. That gives me hope. That is awesome. That is awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Man, because that's what recovery looks like is just a gazillion little tiny moments like that over a long stretch of time. And then you get complacent and something smacks you in the face and you start doing the things you're supposed to be doing again. At least that's been the case for me um this is a shame and secret survey filled out by nurse mom of two she is pansexual in her 40s raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment um ever been the victim of sexual abuse some stuff happened but i don't know if it counts When I was 14 or 15 years old, we moved into a new neighborhood after my parents divorced. There was a man who was around 25 who lived on the next block, lean and gorgeous. He would sit on his porch and wave at me and my friends when we walked by. Eventually, we talked to him. Eventually, he invited me to come over alone and hang out. He groomed me for weeks giving me sips of alcohol, treating me like an adult. He started calling me on the phone at home and we'd talk for hours. He began referring to me as his girl. It started out with him wiping my lips, with his thumb and then a kiss moving quickly to oral sex and ultimately uh, vaginal intercourse I always viewed us as being a couple after all I was his girl my mom found out and confronted him putting a stop to the relationship a short time later he was arrested for child molesting he was in trouble for having sex with several 14 and 15 year old girls my mom wanted me to go to the police and make a report too but I kept telling her that he didn't molest me maybe he molested those girls but not me I'm 42 years old now, and I'm not sure uh, that I was molested. And I wanted to read this survey for many reasons, but number one, because the verbiage is unimportant. It's what you felt and how it it made you feel then, how it made you feel now. It might have just been nothing but excitement back then, and you may feel completely different about it now. And it, it, it is that, I mean, clearly what he did was illegal, but just because you were excited by it doesn't mean that that wasn't a traumatic thing. So, um, it's don't judge based on what your 15, how your 15 year old brain interpreted it. I encourage you to go, uh, Look go to the mall and watch a group of fourteen year olds or fifteen year olds walk by and imagine being twenty-five years old and going up to one of those kids and trying to have sex with them. And that should give you your answer as to whether or not what happened to you was traumatic. Um and by the way, a lot, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but you know, people that are ritually sexually abused um, will often then initiate it on their own with the abuser. That's still abuse. That adult knows better. You know, They, they... I mean, that's why predators are able to get away with it because grooming works. You know, they wouldn't do it if it didn't work. And it works because their brain... Is more sophisticated than a child's brain, and um, and children are for the most part pretty innocent, and uh, and pretty. It's pretty easy to the kids aren't very good at hiding uh, their feelings, and I think predators just pick up on that. So, um, anyway. Uh, darkest thoughts. She she writes that she's never been physically or emotionally abused. Um, darkest thoughts. I fantasize about kidnapping a young Middle Eastern woman, seventeen to twenty one years old. She would be walking alone, wearing a burqa, innocent. We, myself and whatever man is involved, drive up along side of her and i grab her and pull her into the car she fights and screams but she's mine at that point i beat her with my fists into unconsciousness before we get to the garage where i'll be keeping her once there i tie her to a chair leaving her in her traditional dress but removing her undergarments the fantasy involves violence physical, sexual, emotional, I would brutalize her body and mind, never removing her cultural coverings. This would go on for days. She begs me in a language I don't understand, but in a tone that I do. I rape her with a variety of household items and sex toys. Uh, My tongue, my fingers... Uh, the man rapes her orally vaginally anally we rape her together we even bring in a dog and let it lick her pussy and bite her after days of this torture i would kill her cutting her throat and letting her blood run onto my tits letting the man fuck me on her body while she bleeds and dies below us boy i should have um uh given a trigger warning before I uh I read that one but um I think you guys know when we get towards the end of the survey sometimes the heavier ones are uh, are there um Darkest Secrets I was on my period and was staying with a friend who had a dog the dog got into the trash and tore open my dirty pads I was so angry and I grabbed the dog by, by the neck screaming at it I took his nose and shoved it into my bloody vagina I did this as a type of punishment the dog growled and fought trying to get away i didn't realize how good his fur was going to feel against me but i liked it i started being gentle with him petting him and talking nice he began licking my vagina and i let him i had an orgasm from this and enjoyed it very much i had to wash him after because he had blood on his snout in the tub i cleaned him well including stroking his cock I even got into the tub and let him mount me, but he never made it inside me. We did this a couple of times, and then my stay at this friend's house was over. I think about it, watch a lot of bestiality porn, and want all the time to do it again. Um... Uh, And this is probably redundant, but um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. My most powerful fantasies involve sexual violence, mostly done to me, but sometimes done by me. When it is done to me, it is by a male. When I'm doing the violence, it is always towards a woman. Sharing that makes me feel dirty and wrong. And um, let me finish reading the survey. Uh, Anything you'd like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my mom that she has damaged me emotionally just as much as my dad did. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish my son was still alive. Oh, I'm so sorry. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared parts of my fantasy about the Middle Eastern girl with a couple of men I've been with. They each teased me about it and told me I was weird. You are not weird. Uh, how do you feel after writing these things down? I'm glad I don't have to put my real name. People always judge no matter how open-minded they claim to be. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? There is nothing wrong with you. These thoughts are okay. The way they make you feel is normal. And I and I agree, as long as you're not hurting anybody, our brains all cope in different ways and that just happens to be, to be yours. So thank you for sharing that though. Um, I know that some of you don't like the surveys that, that are kind of graphic and intense, but f- uh, others of you feel relief and hearing, uh, surveys, um, because y- maybe you thought you were the only one that thought that or felt that. And, um, uh, apologies to anybody who, um, that was too, too much for. Um, but, uh, you know what? No, I don't apologize for that. You turn this show on, you probably know what you're getting. And, um, you know, anyway, This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a teenager who calls herself sullen artist um, about her depression. She writes, clinical depression. It feels like a weight on my chest keeping me in bed. It's a gag in my mouth keeping me from telling anyone how I really feel. Wow, that is a good one. This is a really good one. Talking about depression makes me more depressed. Hey, you know, people are like, how are you doing? It's just easier to say I'm doing okay than then you know, going through the whole fucking rigmarole. Um, and I apologize for using the word rigmarole. And I, and I know that's, uh, uh, <laughs> I've been apologizing a lot this episode, but that one was a joke apology. Um, about her anxiety. It's like that feeling when you fall right before you hit the ground, when you see the pavement rushing up at you and you know you can't stop it, but feeling it constantly. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard people say that about anxiety. Um, snapshot from your life. In bed with the covers over my head, thinking about everything that could possibly go wrong today, from me embarrassing myself to my mother dying to my cat getting loose to nuclear apocalypse. I don't understand why those have to be separate events. I think if you do something stupid enough, all of those things could happen in just a, a, a chain reaction. Let's say you do something really stupid. You call your mom to tell her what happens. She is so mortified, she literally dies of embarrassment. So in your rush to go over and deal with her body, you leave the door open and the cat gets out. Well, the cat doesn't know how to get back home. Pretty soon it's living on the streets. It falls in with the wrong crowd. And uh, maybe they're the type of cats that dare each other to, to start some kind of trouble. Well, eventually... They're going to be topping each other, and the only thing left is a nuclear holocaust. That's how I see it. I see you doing something, making a tiny mistake, equals a lake of fire. I, In fact, I see you doing, make a minor mistake. I see from, from the view of the furthest end of the Milky Way galaxy, I see... Our earth almost looking like when a marshmallow gets too hot and it just burst into flames and just turns black. All because of you. I, and by the way, I used to do that. Kids would ask me when I was in Little League. I was able to catastrophize things like that. Like, you know, you run across the street and you get hit by a car and your head rolls down the street and a guy riding a bike uh, hits your head and he goes over the handlebars and you know they would kids on my rookie league team would ask me to do that because I could go on for five minutes about just one horror leading to another it never occurred to me I might need help. Eight year old me maybe needed somebody to talk to Uh, Maya who is uh, gay and a teenager writes about her bulimia. I'm tired of fearing that my heart will fail in my sleep, but I hope that's when people will finally care and notice my bulimia. Wow, that is so painful and beautiful and profound. Um, about her sex addiction, my sex addiction feels like a never-ending journey to have an orgasm that's satisfying enough. Man, that is that is the high that is addiction. It doesn't matter whether it's shoplifting or drinking or snorting or fucking. It's chasing that one time that it was perfect. Uh, This is a struggle in a sense filled out by Ivy's neglected butthole. It really does. It it is actually uh, Ivy's butthole is uh, going to form a 503C. Um, it's turned nonprofit. it is so neglected that um, 501c or 503c I don't know <laughs> uh, about her depression every day life is over before 10am that is so great about living with an abuser a million times I've imagined getting a hammer and bashing your skull in as you sleep oh <sighs> That has to be such a weird moment when you live with somebody who's consistently abusive and they're sleeping next to you and completely vulnerable. Wow. Wow. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Aiden, who was a trans male uh teenager, pansexual. And he writes about his anxiety. It feels like I'm trapped in a snow globe with people shaking me for fun. Absolute chaos, but everyone else is fine. About his gender dysphoria. The mirror. You continue to stare at the mirror, and as you back up, it only gets worse. This isn't you. You'll cover your body and debate how you can change it. What can I do? What can I do while I'm under a microscope in a small town? Fake smile. Wave. Can't keep doing this. Oh, buddy, sending you a hug, man. Sending you a hug. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that you can move to some place when you're old enough where you can be you and not feel judged. Because there's a lot of places you can go do that. Uh, A snapshot from his life. I'm sitting in my bedroom and I'm starting to think about what happened again. I recall what a suicide hotline told me to try and I wonder if I'm strong enough. I'm starting to drive myself crazy and I'm desperate, so I go to him, ready to talk about what he's done to me. He looks at me, not expecting me to leave my room, I'm sure. I never leave my bubble. With good reason and i bring up the tumor he had and how he wasn't right in the mind then he agrees and says that he's quote certainly blessed by god i flinch at the thought uh, i flinch at the thought i had while he said that well mom and i weren't so lucky i say to him he gets silent before dismissing everything he only sees how he feels and he lashes out in anger His yelling floods back the reason I'm talking to him in the first place. I run to my room to hide. I tell myself that he isn't who he was, but in my head I'm stuck. I start breathing heavy, sobbing. I can only think of one option. I can't keep dealing with these feelings, so I try to end it. He catches me. I'm placed in therapy. I'm given meds. I'm ashamed. You should not be ashamed. What you are experiencing is somebody you are trying to talk an emotional language with somebody who is emotionally illiterate. And it's like getting mad at somebody, you know, who is from another country that doesn't speak English. And it's frustrating. And I understand you're frustrated. Um, But he thinks that talking is about who is right and who is wrong. He doesn't understand. If, if he knew anything about his emotions and he had ever processed them in a group, he would know that you just needed to speak your mind, that you didn't, you didn't want to make him miserable. So all he could see in that moment was, oh, this is an aggressive move on her part. She wants me to suffer. And that's where I think 90% of the miscommunications between the person who's suffering and the person who is emotionally illiterate go wrong. And both are probably well-meaning people. I mean, you're certainly well-meaning and I just get the, the vibe from him that he's just emotionally ignorant. And you deserve, that's not to say that you don't deserve better because you do deserve better. You, you deserve to be felt and heard and seen and have your pain witnessed by somebody, but it's probably not going to be him. And Maybe not even your mom. And our responsibility, we are not to blame for the trauma we experienced or the mental illnesses that we have, but what we are responsible for is finding ways to manage them and to lead full lives and then to be of use in this world. That is the highest calling. And those of us that have been through a lot of shit, I think, can really be of use because... We can help somebody else feel less alone. But if we don't find those people that help us heal, then we're just stuck in that place of we feel like the universe has shit on us. When in, when we do process it, then we feel like the universe has given us this beautiful gift in hideous wrapping paper um, that brings so much meaning and purpose to our lives. That, that's been my experience. Um, this is filled out by this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Angie fuck and uh, Angie writes about her uh, dissociative identity identity disorder uh she gives us a snapshot. She writes, I often wander and get lost while in a dissociative state. I have traveled five hours away to a different city and even checked into a hotel. I at least had good taste while in this state. Then I suddenly come out of it and have no memory of how I got there. I used to think of it as an adventure every time I left the house. I never knew where I'd end up. However, I have been assaulted in this state and it has become unsafe. Oh. I'm so sorry, Angie. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. And, you know, uh, let me be caretaker, uh, codependent, fuckface here for a second. Um, Anybody who's ever had your survey read by me um, that felt like um, there wasn't compassion or I didn't think it was, um, it it didn't touch me, I only read surveys that that move me. And there's a gazillion surveys that move me that I don't even get to read because there's so many surveys filled out because I'm so popular. Look at that. Paul complimented himself. That was gross. That was gross. Um, this, I like how I said this is going to be a short one and we're at two hours and 10 minutes. Is that where we are? Yeah. Actually, we're almost done. One more. This is the last shame of secrets, and then we got an awfulsome moment and a happy moment. Paul said insecurely. This is filled out by Narsty Waif Smurf, and she's gay uh, in her 20s, raised in a totally chaotic environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it. My father abused me as a child up until I left for good at 22. The last time he had come at me and said if he couldn't get it from my mother, he'd get it from me. It's fucking unbelievable. I was also raped multiple times on military bases. I will not say where. They, They would get me drunk and separate me from my friends, sometimes more than once a night. No never meant no to them. They would even follow me into the bathroom and trap me in. I have mixed feelings about those times in my life. My therapist is working with me and EMDR for it all. Good for you, good for you. She's been physically and emotionally abused. My father is a sadist sociopath alcoholic. He would lash out verbally and physically. If he had a bad day at work or even the drive home he took uh, or, or even the drive home, he took it out on me mainly. He was charming and nice in front of everyone on the outside, but behind closed doors, he lavished in our fear from as far back as I remember. I never slept more than a few hours a night. I was tormented by hearing him rape my mother night after night. He would threaten if she didn't do her wifely duty. He would kick us all out. Jesus. Any positive experiences? I have, I do not recall a single positive memory with him. In fact, I had to do a relationship hw from my therapist and i found out i have zero positive from either parent darkest thoughts i want an apocalypse i want to be the one to kill both of my parents slowly and painfully over a period of weeks i want to recite every horrible thing he did to me and how my mother never believed me or just brushed it off I want them to experience hell on earth before I send them to their graves. My mother, I will keep alive long enough to watch my life end as I slash a machete across my arm and neck. I probably should have trigger-worn this one too, because I know there's some people. You know what? There's so many triggers out there that that's... Ugh, I'm, I am in a self-guessing spiral right now, if you haven't. And uh, it's actually forming like a, uh, quite a bit of circular wind. Uh, Herbert's hair, it it looks like it's uh, standing up. That was lame. Now it's gone from self-doubt to shame. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Sad to say, as gay as I am, I hate being touched and never let anyone touch me. Uh, However, I am okay with performing oral sex on my wife. It doesn't bother me. Uh, What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to tell my wife I have been secretly cutting and drinking. I haven't due to fear of her leaving me, and I will have nothing left to live for. She is all that tethers me to reality and life. Uh, What, if anything, do you wish for? Zombie apocalypse. I would have a blast with a machete. I already have detailed plans and contingencies laid out on the off chance it occurs. You must fucking love uh, The Walking Dead. Uh, Have you shared these? If you guys haven't watched The Walking Dead, it is a great show. Paul said 10 years after the fact. Have you shared these things with others? Uh, Some. I've shared the cutting and drinking with my therapist. I had shared the zombie apocalypse and wish of pain and death on my parents to my ex-therapist, but she wasn't good for me, and I ended that. I finally shared with my therapist my different parts. Do I have DID? Don't know. Not diagnosed. I just went by different names at different times, completely different personalities, and some are hard to remember everything. Smurf gives me enough pieces of rapes to make me want to smash my head in to forget. I'm so sorry. How do you feel after writing these things down separate lost confused a bit of a high thinking of killing my parents is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences as a child don't ever stop trying to get someone to help you even if they say you're lying or you have an overactive imagination make them listen and get help uh, long before it becomes an issue as an adult thank you thank you so much for sharing all of that. That must have been really difficult to fill out. Uh, a lot of these surveys you guys filled out tonight must have been must have been really, really hard to go back in there. But um, I have so much, I have so much respect um, for you guys taking the time to to go back into that those scary memories and uh, and type them out. This is an awful some moment filled out by Lolly and uh, Lolly is a gender and they write I was on my compu- commute home around 1 a.m. I work as a musician uh, so that's somewhat early and this heavily intoxicated woman wobbled onto the train and sat down across from me at one point she caught me glancing at her through her giant sunglasses got up and moved to the very end of the car soon she opened the subway doors and walked out momentarily before seemingly chickening out of something and sat down again. Five minutes later, I hear the doors open and see her walk out, letting them close behind her. And then she goes down pretty quickly in the middle of the space between cars as soon as we're on the above-ground above ground outdoor track, looking like she's moving close to the edge. I assume immediately it's a suicide attempt and yell, no and probably a few expletives as I get up and make a dash for the door with all of my gear in hand. Others hear me, and four men get up and move towards the door to help. One guy gets there before me, opens the door, looks down at her, and says something, pauses, then steps back and lets the door close. He looks at me with a pale face and explained, She was not, in fact, trying to jump. She was shitting off the subway car. She wasn't trying to jump. She was trying to dump. Oh, these are like Christmas. They're like Christmas when I get one that's good like that. It It is wrong that it warms my soul so deeply. And finally, this is a happy moment from first good day in a while. And she writes, I went to an AA meeting voluntarily for the first time today after one month of sobriety and felt scared but welcomed and really free i felt disappointed in myself for the last few weeks and been eating a lot probably instead of drinking and though i'm grateful to have lots of friends who care about me every single one of them drinks and few have had any experience with mental illness like i have so today after i sort of randomly went into the supportive room of strangers and heard stories of people like me I left with a list of phone numbers and messages from people saying, hey, call or text anytime, plus a few hugs, and it was well, a bit scary, but so, so hopeful. I'm grateful for hope today. So grateful to get, to get those emails or those uh, surveys. When, that, when people turn that corner, man, that's, that's like my favorite thing in the world. As when you see the lights come on and you see hope return to somebody. And, um, you know, just the fact that you guys listen to this podcast tells me that, um, (laughs) Herbert is, I don't know if you heard that. He's whining on the other side of the door. Well, listen, if Herbert starts whining, I got to fucking wrap this thing up. So, uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, Many thanks to luke uh, don't forget about the show uh those of you in Oakland or san francisco i'm going to be there july twentieth and twenty first i 'll put the information on the show notes for uh for this episode on our website and um yeah, be good to yourself. How about that Herbert <laughs> He is a treat monster. he is just relentless um and I I hope you heard something tonight that um helped you, comforted you, made you laugh. Um most of all maybe made you feel a little bit less alone, because um you're not. You're not alone, you never have been, and you never have to be. It just takes getting out of your comfort zone and asking for help, which is scary, but it's also awesome. Let that weight, put that couch that's on your back, put it down or at least let a couple of people. Help you haul it up the stairs. Oh, I hate that metaphor. <laughs> let's let's widen that. I hate myself. <laughs> I'll do that for a sabotaged ending. Go fuck yourself. Oh, and you're not alone, and thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully, fucked up, bizarrely beautifully, fucked, up
1: bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some, up in some way. weird way. <laughs>